I actually this morning said to somebody that I think we should uh, narrow down the language to four communicators. Everything else is confusing. We should say, please, thank you, I'm sorry, and I love you. Uh, that's about the only four things that really make great differences in the world. Um, and everything else is commentary, but somehow we have to pass the time of day. But I was talking about the, the, um, the possibility of mistaking long retreat practice, but necessarily for a level of uh, understanding. It's wonderful to, especially I want to say this, not uh, to in any way undermine the, the, the beautiful experience we had with the women who were going away for three months, but to provide a counterbalance to, it's not the amount of time on the Zafo, it's the amount of wisdom in the mind, which uh, develops in all <coughs> kinds of ways. One of the things I've been talking about with some of the folks I've been sitting with the last couple of days are the numbers of people we know in the world who are quite naturally wise uh, and kind and compassionate and don't have a contemplative practice. Do you know people like that? Who do you know? Bob Dylan. <laughs> What's the wisest thing you think he ever said? The time, there you go. <laughs> the times they are changing. Huh? Don't think twice, it's all right. Don't think twice, it's okay. If you're not busy living, you're busy dying. You know, this could be a whole lot. We could, we could this morning write together a new dharma, seriously, for the 21st century. This is recording, I hope, because I'm going to make a copy of this. We said, all, well, it isn't any of those. All you need is love as the Beatles. Um, Bob Marley. Bob Marley. So, I don't know Bob Marley. You have to tell me. Uh huh. It just feels like a few years ago. Because uh, the times are changing so fast <laughs> that we don't know, yeah? I used to use the Bobby McFerrin, don't worry, be happy. Mm -hmm. Yeah? Huh? You know, if we wanted to make that into Buddha Dharma, that it's not directed at me, you could get involved in a whole discussion of understanding karma. That uh, karma, the karma discussions often sound like 
you got something something happened to you because you disturbed it the deserved it that you had done something in a former life or even in this life that caused this particular thing that's now a challenge to you to happen to you and um it's so single-minded and linear it makes us much more powerful than we actually are that i did something that affected the whole course of the world so the whole course of the world is now conspiring to pay me back in this particular way in a certain way it's hubris to think that the whole world is waiting online just to single you out and you know it's a it's an expanded version of uh, you know you'll hear about this from your father when he gets home <laughs> And it, you know, in which you are the only person in the whole world with that. Uh, and when you think about the the infinite number of causes that really make up every moment of experience and cause it to arise in a certain way, uh, you get to see really that what happens is quite impersonal. It happens to everyone quite out of the realm of who deserves what. It happens because it happens. Um, uh, it's not a just because, just for that, then this. It is because of that, then this, but not near on account, you know, that kind of, uh, you ask for it. Well, what I was really going to talk about today, which just might be the right the right lead-in to, is talking about ardency. I thought about it because it came up in the last couple of days of our retreat up there, uh, because the nuns were here a couple of weeks ago, and I was thinking about, uh, it's, it's a rare word, ardent. Um, uh, do you know what it means, ardent? Fervent, passionate, what else? What? Uh, great enthusiastic. Can you use it in a sentence? So people will understand it. Okay. Yeah, it's usually used um, as an adjective for um, for a person. He is an ardent lover. It means he really, or she really, hmm? an arduous task is one that. That's interesting. That's hard. But does it come from that? If the task is arduous, can you do it ardently? Yeah. Then, um, for example, if you were to say he pursued his dance career ardently, yeah. Then 
what you catch is that there's a lot being asked and a lot being given. Yeah. Whereas um, when something is arduous, you get more of the peace mm-hmm. that is very demanding. Well, there's nothing n- uh, lukewarm about ardency. You know, you get that feeling. Yeah. I'm thinking <clears throat> the way I think of the word <coughs> is in the yoga yamas, like the precept. There's the word tapas in Sanskrit. Yeah. Tapas means ardor, and it goes on to mean intense study. Yeah. So it comes ardor and intense study seem to go together. Yeah. Where something every where where the thing at hand really is so, takes on such primacy um, in your life that you really, really want it. Uh, there's something exciting about anybody's ardor because you get a sense of urgency about it. Um, it comes up a lot in the suttas. It comes up a lot in the suttas with the Buddha saying the, uh, the practitioner sits down and ardently brings attention ardently um, he was ardent in his um, uh, in his early practice in terms of the austerities that he took on he was such a devotee and one of, and as it as his early uh, uh, meditation practice was not giving him the satisfaction that he wanted he said um, Suppose I entirely cut off food, and just really, that would show how ardent I was. Um, I actually thought about this whole thing, I think, yesterday, because yesterday, trying to explain to my grandchildren why yesterday, uh, two days ago was a holiday called the Fast of Esther. Yesterday was the holiday of Purim. Um, Purim is one of those holidays in the Hebrew calendar that people don't know too much about. One of the stories in uh, in the Hebrew, um, uh, actually apocrypha, not actually in the regular scripture, uh, that have to do with an historical period, maybe if it happened, in which the Jews in a certain kingdom were jeopardized, and the wife of the king, unbeknownst to him, was a Jew, and uh, she was called upon by. Uh, her inner urgency, the, the um, pushing of her uncle, who said, look, you're in a position to appeal to the king and say not to do that. So in order to develop her ardency for the formidable task of telling the king, don't do this thing that you're all mobilized up to do, she fasted for a whole day and then went with her request so I was thinking about fasting being a preparation for something that you really, really want to have a mind focus to do. I was thinking about it because I've also been reading about the Buddha deciding to fast. She fasted, by the way, and she won. So it had something to do with that, maybe. So I, I suppose I um, take very little food, say a handful each time, whether it be bean soup or lentil soup or pea soup. And I did so. And as I did so, my body reached a state of extreme emaciation. My limbs became like the joined segments of vine stems or bamboo stems because of eating so little. My backside became like a camel's hoof. The projections on my spine stood forth like corded beads. My ribs jutted out as gaunt as the crazy rafters of an old roofless barn. 
The gleam of my eyes sunk far down in their sockets, looked like the gleam of water sunk far down in a deep well. My scalp shriveled and withered as a green gourd shrivels and withers in the wind and sun. If I touched my belly skin, I encountered my backbone too. And if I touched my backbone, I encountered my belly skin too. For my belly skin cleaved to my backbone. If I made water or evacuated my bowels, I fell over on my face right there. Does this sound to you like ardency or? <laughs> if I tried to ease my body by rubbing my limbs with my hands, the hair rotting at its roots fell away from my body as I rubbed because I was eating so little. When human beings saw me now, they said, the monk Gautama is a black man. Other human beings said, no, monk Gautama is not a black man, he's a brown man. Other human beings said the Mankatama is neither a black man nor a brown man. He is fair-skinned. So much had the clear, light color of my skin deteriorated through my, my eating so little. And then comes a uh, Naranjana, a spirit, um, to him in a poem. Namuchi came and spoke to me in a poem with words all garbed in pity thus. Oh, you are thin, and you are pale, and you are in death's presence, too. A thousand parts are pled to death, but life still holds one part of you. Life, sir, life is the better way. You can gain merit if you live. Come, live your holy life and pour libations on the holy fires, and thus a world of merit gain. What can you do by struggling now? The path of struggling, too, is rough. It, and difficult and hard to bear. Let's see if there's a good part at the end of this poem. For I have faith and energy and I have understanding too, so while I thus subdue myself, why do you speak of me of life? There's this wind that blows can dry even the rivers running streams. So while I thus subdue myself, why should it not dry up my blood? And as my blood dries up, then bile and phlegm run dry. The wasting flesh becomes the mind. I shall have nothing of mindfulness of understanding. I shall have greater concentration. I shall have more of mindfulness of understanding of greater concentration. Interesting. The first squadron. Uh, for living thus, I come to know the limits to which feelings go. My mind looks not to sense desires. You see a being's purity. Your first squadron is spent with sense desires. Your second is boredom. Then hunger and thirst compose the third. Craving is the fourth. Sloth is the fifth. While cowardice lines up as the sixth. Uncertainty is the seventh. The eighth is malice paired with obstinacy. Gain, honor, and renown besides and well-known notoriety, self-praise, denigrating others. Those are your squadrons, Namuchi. I will conquer mine. I will gain bliss by victory. I will fly the ribbon that denies retreat. 
shame on life here, I say. I'd better, I, bet, I will die in battle now than choose to live on in defeat. But then he goes on and realizes that by this grueling penance, I have attained no distinction higher than the human state, worthy of noble one's knowledge and vision. Might there be another way to enlightenment? Then he goes off and has some milk that someone gives him and has his um, enlightenment experience under the Bodhi tree. And at some point later on, he says uh, the two most important meals of his entire life are the meal that he took just uh, before he sat down under the Bodhi tree and the last meal that he took, the one that he died after eating. So at that point, they, he develops, and after that, the idea of the middle path, not the, middle, not the path of every kind of sensual uh, pleasure that you want, but not the path of extreme asceticism. We get mocked here at Spirit Rock a little bit about this being not the middle path. They say this is the upper middle path. <laughs> a friend of mine recently came to sit on this retreat, and I said, are you all comfortable in your room? And he said, this is definitely a five-star cave. <laughs> but, uh, but the question is, what austerities have to happen in order for the mind to clear? That's, and how much, how much ardency is required? And does it depend, this is the part I really wanted you to think about, does it depend on how much you think the ardency will work to create the goal that you want? And what is the goal that you want? So here's what the things I was going to have you think about. Think about Julia Butterfly. She lived up in a tree for more than two years. What did she want? She wanted to save the tree. Everybody knows Julia Butterfly sat up in that tree. It's very ardent, wasn't it? Who here would have sat up in a tree for two years if you would have known? You definitely could have saved that tree. It requires you up in a tree for two years. Anybody would have done it? How about the Olympic skaters? It has required of them five or six hours a day of practice since they're five and six years old. Somebody's, uh, somebody's father built her a practice rink in the backyard when she was five years old. Practice every day for five, six hours. You get up. I knew um, one of my friend's sons uh, about 10 years ago placed fourth in the uh, Olympic trials the year he was just in line to go to the Olympics and the first three go and after uh, More than ten years of probably five or six hours a day of practice He didn't get to go. He didn't go and lose. He just didn't get to go to his fourth instead of first, second, third um, He got a job. Uh, he's the lead skater in one of those skating shows that tours the whole world He loves it having a great life. He didn't get to go to the Olympics, but he's got a great trained body, and he loves being a dancer and performing. But every day before school, he, his father got up, or his mother got up, 
and drove him to the ice rink at four o'clock in the morning so he could do two or three hours of practice before school, another two or three after school, because he wanted to be a professional skater. So that's ardency. Um, who here had an ardent thing? Anybody here got up two hours before school to play piano? Yeah. Anybody who's an ardent child? David, what, what did you do? Yeah. What were you? Yeah. In one particular way. towards the goal and the goal is for whom just as you're saying that I'm thinking about there was a play in San Francisco a couple of years ago called something Four Hands do you remember that it was two people playing piano do you, did you see it there were two people playing piano two very 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 accomplished pianists two pianos on the stage and they play uh, and they're both playing and telling their story the whole time and jumping up and down from the pianos, but nothing else happens. Scenes don't change, and you hear their whole life because they're starting da 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 da. They're playing scales from the beginning, and the whole story flushes out behind them. And there are two men who started as boys with great gift for piano. You can see the influence through what they say to each other of their parents' enthusiasm for their talent. That pushes you because you could have a lot of talent, but then your parents get excited about it. And their struggles with their teachers, because when a teacher finds someone who one in a thousand children has a really genuine gift, they fall all over that child and start to foster that gift. And then the question is, uh, because you're going to have a different life as that kind of a person, is that uh, is it good for you? Is it not good for you? And whether or not to feel relieved or dismayed when, in the course of that play, both of them, as young adults, come to the separate realization that I am good, I am very good, and I'm never going to be Arthur Rubinstein, I'm never going to be uh, Emmanuel Axe, and therefore, I'm not doing this. I am going to get a degree in electrical engineering and do something else, you know? Anyway, a lot of people become music teachers, but a lot of people say they didn't train to become a music teacher and teach six and seven-year-olds. They trained to perform. That was their great. That was their great hope and their great dream. And I said, "Okay, I can't do that. I'll play the piano for myself, and I'll build a bridge or teach mathematics or do something else." 
it's interesting to think about whether the goal is for oneself. I wonder whether the goal is ever for all beings. Dead, 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 dead. Yeah. What did he say in it? Trungpa wrote a book called The Path is the Goal. What he said is the participation of being on the path is, it's been a long time since I've read it, but it's kind of like saying that happiness is a process and not a destination. Mm-hmm. You know, that, you know, I'm not an arduous person, uh, arduously, but my, my stepson is. He, uh, he's 11 and he practices karate. And it's, it's not taekwondo, so he's not on an Olympic track, but it, he could be. He's just uh, phenomenal at it, and he is constantly at it. If he's not in class, and he wants to get driven to class all the time, he is uh, practicing the Dutch language dummy, or watching movies, or, or whatever. He's, and I don't know if he has a goal here. He just loves what he's doing. Mm. Just absolutely loves it. Maybe, maybe that's the key. Just as you say that. When we find, let's think a little bit more, because I'm thinking just as you say that, that maybe the key is when we find something that is so synchronous with our being, that this is what we feel, this is what I was meant to do, that this is what this body knows how to do. Then you do it just because it's like standing in your space, the space that was designated for you. Um, and it's effortless, uh, and you don't have to be far from yourself. Let's see everybody else's ideas. Yeah, Miriam next, but kind of. I was listening about two weeks ago on City Arts on the radio, and they had Mark Saltzman, who's a writer out in Rhode Island, still very ardent. And he actually spoke of a moment. He's written books about he was going to be a cellist, and he was going to yell at something. But he went to um, hear Yo-Yo Ma, I think of Tanglewood, and after, ch- after hearing him, he knew he would never be a cellist, but it wasn't because Yo-Yo Ma was a world-class cellist, it was because exactly what this gentleman said, is that he said that every moment he played, there was a kind of joy <laughs> and complete dedication. So it wasn't, it wasn't that he would never be as good, but his heart wasn't as open, and he realized that he, he really wanted the fame and the honor, and he loved the music, but not like that, and, mm-hmm. and it didn't meet him at that depth, and um, at that moment, he actually mm-hmm. decided, yes, mm-hmm. <laughs> I guess I'm not going to be a cellist, yeah. and I have to be a very fine writer. Yeah. And by the way, the, the parenthetical extra remark to that is he, was a, he is a fine writer, mm-hmm. and he wrote a book called Lying Awake. Mm-hmm. Do you read Lying Awake? Who read Lying Awake? Lying Awake is a book about a nun with a brain tumor. Mm-hmm. Uh, a cloistered nun in a cloistered convent in uh, Los Angeles. It's fiction. But it's a nun with a brain tumor who has visions and uh, feels infused with spirit and in those, in those moments of transport uh, writes fantastic poetry, uh, mythical, mystical poetry. And she is filled with the spirit of exaltation 
and the poetry is uh, apparently eloquent and fulfilling. <coughs> and she has a diagnosis of a, a some sort of temporal lobe um, epilepsy that could be treated, and that if she has the treatment, that she has the surgery, then her mystical visions of God will go away. And then the question is, should she do it? And uh, then the question is, is that a mystical vision of God, or is that an altered state? Now here we come into a really interesting discussion of, uh, of altered states. It wasn't where I meant to go, but it's an important story. Because there are, it is possible uh, to do some uh, particular practices that will so alter brainwave functioning that you have extraordinary states. People did that when they took drugs. Uh, a whole generation of people did some very serious experimentation with mind-altering drugs. And during those experiments, they often had the kinds of insights that people hope to have, or say they hope to have, during meditation. They see it's all one. Everything is uh, arising and passing in the ocean of the great sea of awareness. That really there's just uh, connections between people. That really there's just love. That really it's all light and that uh, all of form in the midst of formlessness is, uh, one person told me, dense bunches of light, dense bunches of condensed light in the middle of the great and expansive, uh, endless and infinite and uh, unspeakably bright light. Now, would you like to see that vision? Someone said you could see that. Would you take a drug to see it? You want to live in it. And and what would you and and is that necessarily what's really there? Yeah, Lynn. Well. As a child, I started dancing with Anna Halpern when I was seven, and I danced through the time I was 16, and I was an ardent student. I loved it. So the very thing that we're talking about, being in the process, the process of unfolding and letting the self go and experiencing something much greater than mm -hmm. the self. So I don't know that it was done for the um, benefit of all beings, but I certainly experienced something beyond the self. Mm -hmm. And there were times that I danced so hard that I had um, blisters the size of eggs on the bottom of my feet. Being in this, uh, being in this state that mm -hmm. you're talking about, and that's—I mean, there's a there is a point at anybody's experience where they have to back, where they hit their edge and have to come back in. Mm -hmm. And I think it developed a kind of thinking for me that um, <coughs> the rational kind of studying. Uh, never did, and I had to bring myself back and let go of that to be able to become a student, mm -hmm. to be able to survive as a person, as a student, to mm -hmm. learn as other people learn, not just through this intuitive process. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, I appreciate what you said. It's almost like what I'm going to say, but the only difference is that you were talking about it as a child, and you're also talking about it in the sense of a young person. Sometimes when people are very young, there's an innocence that they don't have to deal with the outside world and they have the opportunity because other people are taking care of them to then um, have the space to explore something to its completeness. 
Um, what I wanted to speak about is that I'm experiencing right now um, something which is taking its great of artists. And um, it's passion. And I, um, I make, I've made a, a major commitment to write a full-length play, a one-person play, and perform it um, within this year. And it's taken, we didn't talk about discipline. So there's a lot of discipline that the musician spoke about, the channel theater. that we have to really include that when we argue there's a discipline, like we do theaters and everything that people spoke about. And what you said, Sylvia, is that there's an effortlessness. Now, I don't know whether because I'm not a child, it's really a struggle. Mm -hmm. I don't find it effortless. Mm -hmm. I find it, it's sometimes agony. I mean, it's like the agony and the ecstasy you know, of an artist. But there's no choice that once, uh, for me, I've gone down that road, I know that I can't stop until I've completed what I made a commitment to myself. Nobody cares. Mm -hmm. Nobody, my husband will still love me if I don't do it. My family won't even come to see me. So I'm not doing it to please other people. But this is something which is my commitment and then to put it out into the world. Mm -hmm. And I find that for me, as a performance artist, to be on the stage and interact with the audience is an expectation similar to what you described in that, in that book where the woman was writing. Mm -hmm. it, it is a spiritual experience. Mm -hmm. And um, we don't often have an opportunity without taking drugs or, you know, to experience something of such great height. Now, it's not always that, but when I'm totally... If I meditate before I go on the stage, and I'm really in tune with the universe, and I empty my vessel and just pray that someone greater than myself will be there on the stage with me, there's a oneness mm -hmm. that is quite, I don't, I've not experienced anything else in life mm -hmm. that will give me that. And it's not like I'm working now for that, because the process is very <coughs> See, I think this is very, that, that what Miriam put on, on top of everybody else's really puts us in a certain understanding, at least I hear it through this grid, and it's really my grid of understanding what happens in a couple of steps, but ending up with that experience where how we manifest ourselves is so synchronous with our being and requires so little at that point of planning. It just happens that takes a lot, a lot of years of discipline and study and practice and but when it happens, it just happens. It's, it's not a cognitive linear event. It's a spontaneously occurring in response to the circumstance event um, that happens without thought. And that the absence of thought <coughs> in that point is the absence of a sense of a separate self. And the absence of a sense of a separate self is really the, 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 the key aspect of the of what's described as the experience of anatta, or you can also say it the other way: the absence of a sense of a separate self is the presence of the sense that the whole world is just unfolding in unison, which is the extraordinary possibility of awareness that you could see there is nothing separate. And depending on the kind of language you use, you say there is nothing but oneness, which is what Miriam just said. Or there's nothing but the ground of being out of which everything comes. There's nothing but emptiness out of which form and is, keeps cycling and uncycling back. There's nothing but God, absolutely. The deathless, the birthless, the, the source, 
the, the, the spaciousness beyond all being, all, any of the names that we would uh, give to that, and that we create separation with uh, our own, uh, as a sense of a separate self arises, we create a specious sense of separation. It isn't that separation occurs, I mean, it's all, everything arising. The piece of the mind that says there is separateness is the piece that's responsible for the suffering. As soon as there's, there's a, there's a I, I keep repeating this one line, and I think I overuse it, from uh, the man who took on the name Wei Wu Wei and wrote in that way, he's actually a Westerner. But he had that one line where he said, if there's anyone at home to suffer, they will. That, uh, that, that if there's anyone at home to suffer, they will. So every once in a while we feel besides ourselves. Or people say, I'm ecstatic, I'm beside myself. Stuff just comes through you. Whatever it is, I think the, 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 I, I've read that description. Or you see Yo-Yo Ma playing. Yo-Yo Ma isn't playing, that cello is playing itself. Yo-Yo Ma is holding it. I just thought of another form of arrogance, and that's caretaking. Yeah. You know, I've worked with so many people that have been caretaking parents and caretaking the dying, and they do seem to lose their sense of self. Because what I've learned is that uh, everybody breaks rule number one, which is taking care of the caretaker. Mm-hmm. 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 It doesn't arise in the mind. That's why. And everybody says they're called to. They just, mm-hmm. There is no option. Well, let's see if we can make this then, because this is a very interesting. This is not at all where I thought we were going, but it's better. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I the questions that I'm having to answer these days are the questions that people come into interviews on retreat, and they say, you know, they've been here for two weeks or a month. And they say, listen, it's really on my mind to ask you, do you really think fundamentally uh, human beings are good? Because we tend to say that all the time when we aren't overwhelmed or confused or frightened by any of our lusts, when we, when we have a certain degree of uh, uh, a sense of satisfaction, we're not disturbed in some way. We're kind. Is that true? Is that your experience? You think people are kind when they're not disturbed, when they're relaxed? That it's human nature to be kind. Okay. You think some people are kinder than other people? Just by nature? Why do you think that? Not, not why do you think, why do you think about, how do you know that? Like, Certain people seem quite selfless, quite generous, spontaneously. Um, yeah, I think that's another part. You know, that so there's that there's nobody holding back. There's no sense of privacy. They give themselves. Because one of the things I've been thinking about is whether we cultivate that with spiritual practice or whether it's a given part of our nature and we can make it more with spiritual practice, or whether it requires actually spiritual practice. Sometimes I think to myself, 
Uh, it comes up in, in my in my personal life. I'll say my husband will say, "What's what's better about you from all these years of practice?" <laughs> and uh, not always in a contentious situation. Sometimes it's just a philosophical discussion. Uh, and I, I'll say, "Well, I think I you know I think I'm kind." And he'll say, you were always kind. I said, well, I think I'm kind-er. That's what I think. Uh, I think I'm kind-er because I think I am more attentive to the times that I accidentally am not. But I am kind not because of some great internalized vision of it's a pious and holy thing to be kind. I don't feel good if I'm not kind. And then I extrapolate from that that human beings don't feel good if they're not kind. But then, if we live in a world and keep our eyes open, it's hard to think that of all human beings, because it doesn't look like all human beings are similarly moved by the desire to be kind. And I've, I, you know, I discuss this a lot with my friends, and partly we can say, well, they're not regular human beings, their minds are so deluded by fear or greed. Well, but that it's it's a significant thing to think about that uh, how many how many human beings are so significantly deluded by fear or greed. But the but I, I guess it was Ted's question or somebody led me to think about altruism. Wait a minute, somebody said whose question was it? That we just do something because it has to get done. Oh, the parenting, Ted's question, yeah. Caretaking. You know, the most extreme version of caretaking, because I think fundamentally what I think about human beings is they take care. They instinctively care for their young. If they didn't, we wouldn't have a species. You know, that, uh, I think all species instinctively take care of their own. Otherwise, we wouldn't have evolution. There's, a, there's some caretaking gene. Certain birds run out of their nest into the view of uh, a fox approaching the nest as a lure so that the fox will come and eat them and leave the eggs in the nest alone. Now, I don't think the birds sit there and think, hmm, what should I do now? Uh, it is a far, far nobler thing I do than I have ever done. I think they just get out of the nest and go because uh, there's something built into them. Um, since the time I read about how, how whales put the baby whale on the lee side so that they can get born and start nursing and not get washed away by waves, that somehow we know to do that. Uh, who here, when they, puts on the, when they put on the brakes of their car, has this hand <laughs> fly out? It just does. It just does. Whether or not there's anybody in the car. Yeah. And everybody has been strapped into car seats and restraints and for, for 40 years now. But we put on the brake and we stick out the hand. That's just what happens. Uh, we take care of each other. And the extreme of taking care is, the, and the human cognitive, you run out of the nest, is a significant number of people in the time of the Holocaust in Europe in the 1940s took in Jews who uh, were being hunted down under pain of possibly you know, jeopardizing their own lives or the lives of their families. After the war, when in those cases, like 
Anne Frank was discovered, but many, many people survived living in basements and attics. A cousin of mine survived living in somebody's hayloft for three years with um, under a hay under a pile of hay under a haystack with an American history book, which he committed to memory in the three years. And he had one book. Um, and people took their lives in their hands. And in all the studies that I've read afterwards of what did those people think of the things they had done, nobody thought of themselves as a hero. Mm -hmm. Nobody came forward. Nobody wanted to get decorated. Nobody. As a matter of fact, they mostly didn't tell people about it. They just quietly went on. And researchers had to come and find them. And uh, they were not all pillars of the church. They were not all upstanding members of the community, particularly. They just were at cross-spectrum of everybody. And when they, the one thing they had in common was their response to the question, why did you do it? And they said, I couldn't not. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So this is a very interesting thing to think about. What is it in a person that says, I couldn't not? Is that an altruism gene <laughs> that causes you not to? Is it, is it the gene in, it's the same gene that's in the bird that runs out of the nest and diverts the fox? that just happens to find itself in a human being. Can you train that? I mean, it's, it's got a remarkable um, uh, implication. Suppose it were a gene. Now we're doing all this gene therapy. Suppose you could put those genes into people and everybody took care of everybody. Okay. That would be interesting. What do you think? So Listen, I I love that idea. Tell me your name. Listen, I I love that idea. Tell me your name. John. I love to think that. I love to think that. That's the happiest dharmic explanation of the way that people are. Why? One of the things that people want to talk about all the time, appropriately, is we struggle so much with racism, classism, sexism. Uh, every kind of sectarianism, uh, every kind of uh, religious sectarianism. I read this morning, we'll see if I have time to read it to you, an article about uh, uh, religions, that all the great religions of the world fundamentally teach peace and fundamentally are used as excuses for war. Mm -hmm. And how does that come to pass? Mm -hmm. What is that? Why don't we all see? that it is, a, it is a far, far better thing I do than I have ever done. Right, there you go. Right. Uh, you know, it seems to me that it's becoming the compassion that we, if 
through thinking as a human being through the doubt and the compassion to take care of somebody else. But if we don't have mindfulness, you know, we go off on the other end of it and uh, in the codependency and resentment. So I think that the drive that for fear to help another person is there, but I think that we have to also have the idea of mindfulness to know that that you're consciously doing it uh, as an act versus I'm going to help 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 for someone in need or deficiency or whatever. And I think there's a, there's a trap there to just be the helper. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think the two go together, compassion and mindfulness and the, and the helping of another person is also a certain consciousness. And those people that, that helped, they, they had no other way. Mm-hmm. And they did it kind of intensely while there's nothing else to do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Rosemary. Well, on the good and the, and the mess, I think the good, the bird flies in front of the mess because that's how the birds survive. That one bird was dying for God and that other bird was a little bit better than one cancer thing. But I think we, we have that ability to think about it, <laughs> you know, if it is for the greater good. And Particularly, so I was talking to my uh, daughter the other day, and uh, my granddaughter, who's going to be three, was in the background, and she keeps wanting to say no to everything. <laughs> and then she no, I don't want to say no to that. So my daughter said, no, Donna Sam, would you like to say hi to Mama? And she said, no, I don't want to say hi to Mama. So, it's kind of a natural thing. That is a long That's a pretty. That's a, actually it's a lovely story, Rosemary, because it's pretty much exactly on schedule for what people uh, in all the systems, Piaget and Freud and Erickson, have figured out, seem to be about the time that children have the ability to recognize that there are other people in the world separate from them, that the whole world doesn't revolve around them, and that those separate people have a range of feelings just as we have a range of feelings. You have to think about feelings. Feelings are so interesting. Can you, everybody got a piece of paper? This would be so, you don't have a piece of paper. You can do it on your palm if you want to. Do this on your palm or on a paper. Make a round face, okay? Just with your finger, you know, draw a round face. And uh, make two eyes. Anyway, make a mouth that's uh, sad. Make one that's happy. Make one that's astonished. Make one that's frightened. What else can you think of that? Uh, Make one that's terrified. Uh, Tell me, what else? You could do with the eyes or the mouth, right? Surprise. Surprise you do eyes, huh? Yeah, 
Oh, and Bevan, how would you do that with your face? <laughs> yeah. What else could you do? Hey, do it. Look at each other. Okay, everybody looking at somebody. Surprise. Okay. <laughs> okay. Angry. Angry. Yeah. Uh. Huh. Uh. Let's do. Let's do a hard one. Worried. Uh, too much laughing. Alarm. Alarm. Yeah, alarm. That was a good alarm. Okay. Uh, uh, pleasure. Pleasure, as in a parent being pleased. I was. I saw a movie the other day in which I saw. It's a very interesting story. I was in the gym, and in the gym, it's very interesting to me anyway, maybe you don't find it interesting. I was in the gym, and I'm running along on the treadmill, and I do not listen to the, they have big televisions up in front, but I don't listen to the televisions. I listen to my Walkmans, because I like what's on the Walkmans, and I listen to gospel usually on the Walkmans. So I'm running along listening, but the images on the TV screen are there. And over here, I suddenly, know, you know, looking around, and all of a sudden you see on this particular screen, there's a, a probably an ad for some club in the Caribbean, some hotel, because you see two young people, youngish and fit, and in some beach party, and they're talking to each other. And you can see that they have friendly faces, and they're talking to each other. And all of a sudden, you can see that from friendly. There's like a spark, and you suddenly get it that these people have seen themselves in a suddenly different, somewhat erratized way. You know how you're talking to somebody, and all of a sudden you realize, ah, there's something more in this. I was going to say, could you do that? This is not a point, but could you do that with a person next to you, or is that not nice to do? <laughs> Maybe not nice to do. We want to imagine it in your mind. Meantime, I'm not watching. I'm not listening. I am just watching with my earphones. Uh, but you can see, and as I'm watching, I'm running along. I'm listening to someone singing gospel. I'm watching this. You don't need the words. You see people talking. Then you see them giving each other the eye, so to speak, in a new way. And I feel a little bit uplifted from that. You know, it's like a it's an uplifting moment to see that. You can extrapolate from that moment all lifetime that these two folks might spend together. You know, it's a lovely idea. It's just in a film anyway, but we're all, you know. So it's all stories. So uh, I realize it's very uplifting to think the birth of a new relationship. It has so much hope, so much promise, even if it's an ad. Then I realized how pickup it was. And then I realized that in the screen next to it, equally big right there, while I'm looking here, it's a huge glass of water with an effervescent dental uh, <laughs> denture cleaner buzzing away in it, and someone has just dropped their dentures in there. And they're also so pleased, they're admiring their dentures getting cleaned <laughs> in that denture cleaner. And you realize, if you want to look at it with eyes of Dharma appreciation, you realize it's all changing. I mean, these fit folks here at the beginning of a lifetime of maybe love and passion and eritism and libido and whatever, 
And soon, here is the dentures over here. So it's like a Dharma thing. And I thought, if you look at if you look at the world as if it's a Dharma lesson, everything will present itself as a Dharma lesson. There isn't a piece of the moment of the day that you could not write a Dharma lesson about. We might do that for homework. If you looked with awake eyes, every moment of the day would teach you the truth of life. You say, I'm going to read from the life of the Buddha, or I'll read you a prayer from a Tibetan prisoner right away. But in fact, the proof text for the suffering of life is in every single minute. So we said to, well, there's one little piece that I want to go back to before I read you this proof text. Because I think we came close to another really important point. And it was a point about not being separate from your activity. And the determination and the practice and the ardor that's required in order for you to have the virtuosity that allows you to not be separate. Yo-Yo Ma has to bring his body to the stage and sit down and hold the cello. So he's required to do that. And then, once he starts, the music plays itself. He, that the, the personality of Yo-Yo Ma isn't there. The, the, the whole being of Yo-Yo Ma is hearing that music and playing the ne- and the next note is getting played as a result of that whole appreciation of the music that's going through Yo-Yo Ma. I uh, haven't seen him so much as I've seen uh, uh, Yitzhak Perlman. And I love to watch Perlman play and listen to him. And one of the things about him is that he, of course, sits to play the, the violin because he's, uh, he has post-polio um, inability to stand up, can't use his legs. So he comes out on stage, sits down, picks up the violin, and plays away with the symphony and the gorgeous play that he plays. And then there'll be a long rest, during which time he's looking at the audience, He's looking at the uh, orchestra and appreciating how well they're playing. And he has his uh, bow arm hanging down over here. He's just looking around, bow arm. And he gets to the place in the music where you know he's going to start playing in a moment. And in my mind, I think, okay, pick up the bow. You know? <laughs> they're gonna come, it's going to come to your part, and you're standing with your bow down here. You know, they're all my children, you see. <laughs> And giving them instructions. <laughs> I was sitting next to somebody watching the young man getting the uh, uh, silver gold medals for um, uh, that ice snowboarding. That what the ones with the yeah the half pipe thing. The three young guys with the beautiful tight suits and they all had little hats on USA. And they had the hats on, and everybody I was with in the room spoke to the set and said, take off the hat. <laughs> you know, they do the Star Spangled Banner. At the last minute, they took off the hat. They must have gotten 160 million people saying, take off the hat. <laughs> anyway, Yo-Yo Ma's, uh, uh, sits like this. And at the very last, he's looking around, checking here and there. And at some point, his arm starts to lift up, just like a like a dance move, mm-hmm. it goes to the edge, not hurry, comes over here, and lands on the string precisely when it's supposed to. Mm-hmm. That you know that nothing, ha- the whole music happens through him with him, but there's no pro uh, in there. It just happens. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
That probably happens much more gloriously than if you were thinking, one, two, you know, if one try to come in. But when you think about that, the degree of virtuosity that has to happen for the next thing to come out just by itself, synchronously, requires tremendous effort. We talk, Now we're going to at least get to the end of this talk by talking about effortless effort and efforting and determination, which are three kind of Buddhist instructions. Talk a lot about effortless effort, that uh, the, it, when the mind is relaxed, the next moment will reveal itself, and mindfulness will meet it with awareness, just because that's what mindfulness does. You don't have to say, okay, ready, set, go, I'm mindful. If the mind is uh, balanced and alert. You've done the work for balanced and alert and attentive. There's that and that and that. Not only do you see everything, but you, you really can see, you can choose, you can say, well, there's that, 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 and that. There's, here's again that disagreeable story. I'm not doing that now. I'm going to do this, which is not repression or suppression. It's choice. I also think of it as liberation. We all of us have enormously sad stories in our library that we can replay for the whole rest of our lives. Anybody does not have sad stories in there? Really, seriously sad stories in their library of recollection. Everybody has wonderful stories in their library of recollections, yeah? Everybody. And everybody has this moment, which is interesting just by itself. And sometimes it's very valuable to have a look at that old story because you see it with new eyes. Sometimes it's very valuable to have a look at that old story of something lovely because it has something new to teach us. And sometimes, we can just be here and do this, because this is a story. And the ability to be able to choose is a, is a quality called malleability of mind. Uh, maybe it's something. Um, maybe it's something like there's another Perlman story. Um, I wonder if it's this playing away somewhere, and a string broke. In the middle, it happens sometimes. Playing on the string broke, and uh, somebody, I guess, from the orchestra, got up to go get him another string. It'd be much faster if someone else went out and got him a string and came back. And he said, "No, no, no." I sit back down and he thought for a minute. And he said, "Okay, let's go back three bars." And they continued to play. He played without that string. He transposed it all. You know, so I mean, it has to come out of him. Completely without, if, and if you thought, how, how can I transpose this? You have to hear the music and have it come out your body in one moment. Perfect. If you hear it, it comes out of you with what's there. It's such a moving story to me in terms of our own bodies will break strings all over the place. But, but you know, the music can come out of it the same way. We play on the strings we have left. Um, which becomes more and more uh, <laughs> clear to me <laughs> with increasing years. <laughs> All of us are playing with the strings we have left. There you go. There you go. The wholeness of the being in the absence of the thought. After the, if I had a thing, I would write it down. But you know what I thought about the other the other day. 
was thinking particularly about what doesn't wear out. Because everything wears out. Um, some things faster than other things are out of their time, but it's not out of their time, it's in their time, it's not out of the consensus time, but thank you very much. Now David has to say his thing again. What was that, David? Presence in the absence of some of the parts. You know what? That's going to make it into the great apocrypha of this class, <laughs> of which we have certain things that are ours. They are ours. Because you know what I think lasts till the very end? Everything breaks. Okay. Um, but we have the ability, I think, to be able to say, it's okay, I make a spaces, I won't contend. I think the final the final choice we get is I resist or I surrender. Mm -hmm. And that it's the I surrender which means it means everything. It means I get it. It means I'm awake, it means I'm alert, I know what's happening. I know the options. The choices are less. Sometimes there's no choice at all. So okay, this is what's happening. Um, well, this is a kind of a, it, it's a it, it, this is a heavy story, but it's what just came into my mind, so I'm going to tell it to you with all the caveats. I'm sorry it's such a heavy story, and we had one heavy story earlier, but one of the things that shaped my life as a child was uh, I, I had a certain fair amount of a, of a Jewish education, a traditional scripture Jewish education and Hebrew education. Uh, and uh, growing up in the 40s, I learned to sing uh, the song of the resistance forces of the Warsaw Ghetto. And uh, there, there was a particular song that began, um, I, it, I, it, it's a piece of scripture written to sing. I, began, I believe with perfect faith in the coming of the Messiah, the liberator. Uh, I believe with perfect faith in the coming of the liberator. Um, and even though that coming is delayed, I will continue to believe. And uh, it appealed to me very much as a child. First of all, I knew its implications. I knew that people sang it, whole groups of people, as they were uh, being herded into gas chambers. So I wanted very much in my life to have perfect faith. I could not intuit what that would mean, but, I, but if it was, I wanted to have it. And uh, when I've thought about it much more recently, actually I've been thinking about it in recent weeks, because I've been thinking a lot about what kind of person says I couldn't not, what kind of person saves, what kind of person says at the last minute, I believe with perfect faith. My friend Sharon has just written a book on faith, it'll be out in the fall. And uh, we talk a lot about it. Isn't faith in a perfect liberator? You know, that I think to myself, maybe most of those people believe that in the last minute some act of Deus ex machina, some god out of the sky, would rescue that thing, and they would actually be physically rescued. I don't have that kind of faith that uh, we can get physically rescued 
I can't get physically rescued from a body anyway. It's going to die at some point. You can't get physically rescued from an execution in those kinds of circumstances easily. But you could get rescued from um, the suffering of hating it, and the suffering of being tied in a knot. You could spend your last moment loving. That I think you get as a birthright. You could, you could, you could get rescued from forgetting to love, um, which saves your life in the end. Because I think, I think somebody said it earlier in the beginning when we started with all those um, Bob Dylan and Bob Marley and um, that fundamentally we have that possibility we could love. Um, and that we could not forget to do that. We could say, I love you. People did it. Normal people who didn't have heard of the Buddha, probably who weren't necessarily religious, made phone calls from the planes as they went down on September 11th and said, I love you. It's the only possible um, goodbye, I think, under those kind of circumstances. What do you want people to have you say? There's books about the final uh, death utterances of um, uh, Zen monks. The whole books. Where, uh, I can't even think of some of the other things that people say. But... Uh, Everybody's supposed to spend their life composing their death epithet, and then they say it as they die. But I don't know what we, you know, I if I can work it out, I'm going to say I love you. You gonna you have something better you'd like to say? It might be the same as thank you very much. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I hope so. I think that what we're doing is we're doing a, a natural life practice. Um, I've been thinking about uh, the people, uh, about how people start to, uh, often when they're dying, well, well Ted will know more, because Ted works with hospice. When people are dying, they lose their second languages and their third languages, and they get, they, they're back usually to be able to speak only their first language, what's way underneath everything. And uh, I remember my father in the last days of his life, I would, and he couldn't say anything, but he could squeeze my hand and I could say, listen, if I say something, if it's yes, do this, if it's no, don't squeeze, or something like that. And in the end, he didn't speak English. I'd have to talk to him in Yiddish because that's under that. But uh, I thought, and sometimes people say things out of the blue. And I thought, what could I practice saying? Because I, I don't want to start saying the Gettysburg Address out of the book. <laughs> uh, you know, I, and I know it, but I don't want to practice that so they can say, how remarkable she said the Gettysburg Address. <laughs> <You know? laughs> uh, so, but the couple of people want to say something, yeah. 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 <laughs> See, yeah. 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 Well, I think there's many conversion experiences. We all experience that, you know, occasionally we need more basic 
to say, I have a homework for you. Just one second, but I just, okay. Yeah, you go. My experience, um, it's very hard for people to, uh, at the end of their lives, be loving if they haven't received love all along the way. So that's one of the difficult things sometimes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.